Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. So pleased to see you return to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today is a wondrous day here at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop because it is All Hallows' Eve, otherwise known as Halloween. A splendid time for the dark, the mysterious, the macabre, the frightening, and the things from beyond the veil. And of course, today a special day because we are not releasing one episode here on Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, but a double feature of episodes are subject today and also something later on today with a surprise random curiosity somewhere in between. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I do have something in particular to show you, to feast your eyes on. If you'll look over here, it is a small curio cabinet. A piece of antiquity made of wood and glass and very ornately designed. This curio cabinet would display collections and heirlooms in any other home here at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. It always houses the bizarre, the haunted, and the otherworldly. But that name, curio, it's quite a peculiar name. If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll find that it is an abbreviation, a shorthand version of the word curiosity. But the word curiosity itself, where does that come from? Of course, Curio first used in 1850s, but curiosity uh, comes from the Latin curiosus, which means careful and inquisitive. And it is those who have a curious and inquisitive nature about them that look into the darker recesses of the world. And therein lies the essence of today's episode on Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the mutoscope and take a look at the new Netflix anthology series, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. So Guillermo del Toro, uh, one of my favorite directors out there, anything he's involved with, anything he puts his hands on, whether it's directing, writing, producing, it always has something about it that draws me in because I, I you know, I, I think anybody who's into horror, fantasy, and science fiction, we all kind of feel a kindred spirit. And he's definitely the kind of cat that uh, people like us, we find a kindred spirit with. We're all interested in the same thing. While he might not do straight up horror, he leads us down paths and through labyrinths. Uh, see what I did there? <laughs> to the bizarre and the odd and the the frightful and the mysterious. And I, you know that's that is what I am all about. So when I found out Guillermo del Toro was doing this anthology series for Netflix called Cabinet of Curiosities, I I was in. Because it's funny, I first heard about this uh, just shortly after I decided to do this podcast, Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So when Cabinet of Curiosities comes about, I'm like, oh, that's cool. It kind of, you know, it, it's it's like uh, Guillermo del Toro and I were on the same wavelength. I know that's not the case, but 
at any rate, you know, indulge my fantasies. But I was really excited when this finally came out and finally hit on Netflix just before my birthday. Of course, this came out on October the 25th and ended on October the 28th. They released eight episodes over four days. Uh, Of course, my birthday was this past Saturday, October the 29th. So to me, it felt like an early birthday present. And, And one of the things I felt was cool about this, not just the fact that it really kind of shares a similar idea to what I wanted to do with this podcast and delve into to you know the odd and the bizarre and the strange you know talk about a horror fantasy and science fiction and do it through the vehicle of you know a, a curiosity shop where I could tie in items in the shop to different things I'm going to talk about uh, it, you know I didn't reinvent the wheel there it's something that's been done in one form or fashion uh, over the ages but I thought that'd be a fun way to do this podcast and to to introduce the stories. And I like how Guillermo del Toro kind of had that that similar idea and how he starts off each episode. And and I, a little sidebar here, uh, I really think it's cool that Guillermo del Toro introduces each episode. Now, that very first episode, the introduction is a little bit longer. He kind of goes into this cabinet of curiosities, that there is an actual cabinet of curiosities. It's a weird architectural structure that has doors and compartments where he pulls out uh, various relics that relate to the story that is about to be told and I I love that idea but I also love the fact that Guillermo del Toro introduces each episode it really felt like a throwback to 50s 60s especially horror and science fiction and and supernatural anthologies of course Rod Serling with the Twilight Zone uh, always comes to mind guys like John Newland from One Step Beyond back in the late 50s, early 60s. You know, I always think about him when I think about anthologies that have that kind of person that leads you into the story. Of course, uh, more recently, you have things like The Crypt Keeper and more fanciful. Uh, Creep Show has The Creep now uh, in that anthology series. So uh, they've become a little more disgusting and a little more mummified uh, these days. But but I like going back to that old school style of having having the announcer or having somebody there to kind of uh, tell you, set up the story. And and another cool thing I like about it is that not only does Guillermo del Toro set up the story with some sort of artifact that represents the story, but he also introduced you to who directed it, which I think, you know, being a director himself, I think that is really cool that, you know, he's not just pumping out these stories, uh, but he's also telling you, uh, you know, who's behind the story. And a lot of these stories are stories that the director also wrote or had a hand in writing as well. So I thought that was a really cool touch to to begin this series. And one of the things that made me really enjoy it. Now, I have to say, Guillermo del Toro's accent makes it sometimes a little hard to hear what he's saying if you're not paying attention or if you're like me and the furnace is kicked in and it is loud as sin. Sometimes don't catch things. So uh, if you haven't watched Cabinet of Curiosities yet, I encourage you at least watch the beginning with the closed caption because uh, you might miss something that uh, Guillermo del Toro says. But, uh, but ultimately, like I said, other than that initial intro, uh, he keeps the intros very brief, very short and sweet. And 
Uh, and, and like I said, it's just such a fun way to set up each episode in a horror anthology like this. Now, I'm going to try to be as unspoilery as possible. Um, I, we may talk about some light spoils. Uh, I'm not really going to do a spoilery section at the end. Uh, because, you know, I don't want to have to go through each episode and then go through each episode again to give you the spoilers for each one. So uh, it may get a little spoilery. I encourage you, if you haven't watched Cabinet of Curiosities, it's only eight episodes, go watch it. I mean, they vary in time from an hour to, I think one was like 38 minutes. So, you know, they come in varying lengths, but... But you can power through or watch it over a few days and then come back and listen to this. Because like I said, uh, I'm going to try to be as unspoilery as possible, but I'm not making any guarantees. So the first episode that we're introduced to is Lot 36, uh, directed by Guillermo Navarro. And it's based on a, a teleplay. Um, or actually, it's based on a short story by Guillermo del Toro. And Guillermo del Toro and Regina Corrado did the did the teleplay for this. But uh, Guillermo Navarro directed this. And I, I really liked Lot 36. It was kind of a slow burn. It really took a while to get to the goods. And, and I thought there was a lot of stuff that really didn't need to be. You're introduced to this, this main character. Uh, he's a veteran. His name is Nick. And he buys abandoned storage units it felt like a like a creepy version of storage wars but at the beginning we're set up he's listening to some like sort of ultra right wing uh we don't like foreigners here radio station and he uh treats a uh Hispanic woman who he bought her locker a few weeks ago. Uh, he won't let her in to get her family pictures and things like that. It's all to set up that this guy's a jerk and to make what happens to him make you not feel so bad about it. But I, I just didn't think any of that was necessary. You could have set up this guy was a jerk without going through the long rigmarole of him driving, listening to this radio station, him, all, all the interactions he had with this woman. Uh, it, it took up a big chunk of the first part of this story. Now, once you finally get into the, the, the nuts of this, the nuts and bolts of this story, it's really creepy. Once he gets into this uh, storage unit and finds all the weird things, there's even a, a part of the beginning where you meet the, the old man who had the storage unit and we see how he dies. I don't think he needed that. I think he could have set up that this guy was a jerk. Uh, I think he could have set up the exposition about who this guy who owned the storage locker was uh, just briefly when they're when they're telling about it before the auction and then let the things that Nick finds in the storage unit tell the story of who this guy is and how he reacts tell the story about what kind of man Nick is and it really it's once you get into that it really gets into some creepy stuff with Nazi occultism and there's a little bit of backstory that I, I I have some trouble with how they did the exposition on that. He meets a, a a German collector who seems to know conveniently everything there is to know about the guy who owned the locker. Uh, that seemed a little too convenient, but but once it gets into that and once they find uh, the secrets of this storage unit, it got creepy and the special effects on it, the creature design was really cool. The special effects the CG was, wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great. Uh, I've seen better, but there again, I've seen a lot worse. So I, I could look past that because the creature design was really cool. And the 
the chase at the end, you know, the storage facility, almost like a labyrinth. It almost felt like the old uh, labyrinth in the Minotaur stories from uh, from ancient Greece. But I really dug this. Other than the fact that it just took a long time to set up, I really liked the first episode, uh, Lot 36. Uh, episode number two was Graveyard Rats. Now, this was a wickedly fun episode. You have these this grave robber, played by David Hewlett, and he just he's fantastically, gleefully... <laughs> gleefully fun to watch uh this almost feels like uh, uh and a lot of these episodes are based like i think around boston uh everyone seems to have a boston accent uh, or a new york accent and a lot of the actors really do kind of like an over-the-top almost caricaturish version of these these accents and and a lot of these are period pieces i don't know as if any of the stories are set in the modern day. But this is a story that I, I really liked it. It was really fun to watch. Uh, the special effects, you know, there's some there are some CG rats in this. You don't have a episode called Graveyard Rats and not have rats in it. Uh, some of the graveyard rats, uh, the CG rats are kind of uh, kind of bad CG, but then they have some scenes that actually actually look pretty decent. But you have this this wild story where this guy is trying to rob this grave, and these rats have been stealing bodies, and he goes on almost like a Goonies underground adventure. Now that's where it kind of gets a little. Uh, they couldn't. I don't think they could tell if they wanted to do a creepy. Uh, mutant rat story or a creepy uh, undead witchcraft story. It got a little muddied as to what kind of story they wanted to tell. I wish they would have picked one or the other. Uh, it just seemed a little bit of, uh, we brought this element into the story just so we could uh, push this main character to the end of the story. It, it, it felt a little contrived, but but all in all, it was a fun episode to watch. And in spite of the kind of, you know, not really knowing which way they wanted to go with this as far as the horror, and in spite of the fact that the CG rats were sometimes a little wonky, I think they did, like, with the with the main rat, uh, I want to say they did some practical with that. And it looked really cool and really creepy. The creature design was just splendid. I, I really loved it. It was kind of... Creepy, and it, the whole episode plays on claustrophobia and, and you know, being in the dark with nothing but a flashlight and things going bump in the night. It just really played on a lot of uh, some of those primal fears. But this episode, directed by Vincenzo Natale, and he did the teleplay based on a short story by Henry Kuttner, and I really liked it. Again, it wasn't the, my favorite episode, but it was a really good episode. Really good for episode two, and I think the episodes get better as you go along with this anthology. Episode 3, Autopsy, probably one of my favorite episodes of this season of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. It's directed by David Pryor. It's a teleplay by David S. Goyer, based on a short story by Michael Shea. And it's... I loved the... I mean, there's a small cast in this, but I loved the two leads in this, and they did such a fantastic job with this with this story. It stars F. Murray Abraham, uh, who plays Dr. Carl Winters, and uh, Glenn Turman, which he's a guy that... You, he's one of those you don't really know where you've seen him, but you've seen him in a ton of stuff. 
and he plays Sheriff Craven. And Sheriff Craven's called Dr. Winters to do this autopsy. There was a mine explosion under suspicious circumstances, and insurance is involved. There's a lot of play there. But once you get into the autopsy, and uh, F. Murray Abraham, as Dr. Winters, starts piecing things together and figuring out what happened based on stories that that Sheriff Craven has told him uh, how they got to this point with the mine explosion. Uh, it's just, it's a fun kind of what's going on, sort of a mystery. And then once uh, Dr. Winters solves the mystery the the way it's all resolved is so fun and it's you know I'll, I'll tell you it's it has to do with aliens uh alien possession and it's just uh, a brilliantly done episode the way it ends is so uh tragic but it you know when when you have things like this where there's an alien invasion pending and people have to make sacrifices to to put an end to the oncoming, uh, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to call it apocalypse because everything's an apocalypse these days, but the the forthcoming impending doom for the, the human race, uh, it just played out so well and was such a fun and so well acted. Uh, this really was one of my favorite episodes of the season. Now, the outside is episode number four of this series and it was a it was an episode when it started i wasn't sure how i was gonna like it but then as it went on it just got it got better it you know it leaned into some comedy things almost like parody at first but then it really delves into some horrific things and i was like okay now, now we've got ourselves a, a horror tale here. But it stars Kate Micucci, and you, you probably have seen her. She's in, uh, she was in Scrubs. Uh, she's in Raising Hope. Uh, she's in Big Bang Theory. If you watch that, she's in the musical comedy duo Garfunkel and Oates, which are freaking hilarious. But uh, but she plays this this main character, kind of an ugly duckling character named Stacy, and she's just one of these people that just doesn't feel like she fits in. And you have a lot going on with this. It kind of speaks to maybe some of the commercialism of the '80s. This feels like it's set in the 80s i don't i don't know as if it comes out and says it but just by some of the uh, things you see on tv the way her co-workers are dressed it feels very 80s uh now i i will say there was a couple things the flat screen tv on the wall and the modern ketchup bottle in the 80s it would have been a glass bottle of heinz ketchup and this it was the plastic bottle that we all know today the very distinct plastic heinz bottle shape and all of the generic knockoffs have that same shape bottle uh, that that i i don't know why <laughs> those two uh, instances really took me out of it so I, I don't know as if it was meant to be in the 80s or have an 80s vibe and that's why there were a couple modern things in it but I, I could look past that because it was a really interesting story about how this this woman wants to change and she's introduced to this this lotion that's supposed to I don't know uh, revitalize your skin and she has an allergic reaction to it and then it kind of turns into it feels very much like Stephen King's story uh the revelations of Becca Paulson a short story King wrote uh, I believe it was published in the Rolling Stone in 
like the mid 80s and then he kind of worked it into one of the subplots of the Tommy Knockers novel. Uh, Stephen Weber did a an adaptation of the revelations of Becca Paulson in uh, episode of The Outer Limits, one of the newer revivals of The Outer Limits. But this story kind of had that feel where she's starting to see these commercials for this this product, Aloe Glow, and the person on the TV pitching the Aloe Glow uh, product starts talking to her. And of course, that's played by Dan Stevens. And he just does a fantastic job with this character. I didn't even realize it was him. Realize it was him. His, he, his voice sounded familiar, but I'm like, who in the hell is this guy? And it wasn't until afterwards I looked at the credits and, and saw that it was Dan Stevens. But he did a, a fantastic job. But, but it really kind of plays off off the mental state of this woman and and you start to think well she's just going crazy and then things happen with the aloe glow that maybe she's not crazy and the ending is really interesting how how it is very much an ugly duckling story that we see the swan after it's all said and done and how this uh this swan is an outsider to begin with because she doesn't fit in but now she's she's like everybody else and it plays into you know like is it commercialism conformity uh she kind of has this look on her face it starts off as a smile and it gets more and more tense and forced and weird very much like the end of pearl it was one of those stories where they had a lot of things to say uh they never really spell out what they're saying but they're just putting it out there for you to digest chew it up gnash on it a little bit and decide whether you're going to swallow or spit it out and i decided to swallow i was in on this as much as i didn't think i'd like it i wasn't sure if i was going to like the comedy martin Starr plays uh the husband of stacy and he does a fantastic job uh it's got some gore in it it's got some weirdness in it like i said some comedy it's got some messages it's it's got a lot going on and i mean that in a good way sometimes too much can be too much but but in this case they did a fantastic job and Anna Lily Amapour plays or does the uh, she's the director on this uh, it's a teleplay by Haley Z Boston based on a story by Emily Carroll and I, I really I like I said I didn't think I was gonna like this when it first started but it turned out to be a really good episode now the next two episodes episodes five and six were both well of course they both came out on the same day October 27th but they're both interestingly enough based on HP Lovecraft short stories uh, so you know when I, I didn't realize that going into the first one uh, I'm like oh this this really feels like a Lovecraftian story. And then I found out later it was. And then I'm like, oh, okay, it makes sense. But uh, Pickman's Model, uh, directed by Keith Thomas, the teleplay by Lee Patterson, uh, it was it was probably one of the darkest and creepiest and, uh, dare I say, scariest episodes. Uh, you have Ben Barnes, who, if you know who he is, you've seen him in, in numerous things. He's in Netflix series Shadow and Bone, done numerous other things he is a, a painter will thurber this is based in probably the 1800s late 1800s i believe it maybe goes into the early 1900s uh, i think we get a, a time jump and it's maybe like 20 years later uh, but yeah turn of the century type story and will thurber befriends this 
other artist, Richard Pickman, played by Crispin Glover, who I, I, it's one of those, I, I like, I, that guy looks familiar. And then I realized it was Crispin Glover and he is just dementedly uh, wicked as this, this Pickman character, a tortured artist, a tortured soul who paints horrific, demonic, gruesome imagery. He is revered by his peers but reviled by the the establishment the teachers and academia in general but will thurber has this weird experience with one of uh pickman's paintings and and ends up uh, being estranged from his sort of friend for for a good number of years. I want to say it's like 20 years. Uh, Thurber's married by the time Pickman comes back into his life. But it does feel very much like a Lovecraftian story when you get to the final climax of the episode where Thurber comes to Pickman's house to see his, his final painting and just... All of the horrors that lie in wait, the horrorous revelation of what Pikmin is, who Pikmin is, and the horror of what he paints and where it comes from, the, the real-life leanings of the model if you will, of Pickman's portraits and Pickman's paintings. And then when Thurber goes home to find those horrors uh, have come to pass, it, it's just, and it is disgusting. I mean, it is, it is a dark, dark ending. And dark in, in probably one of the most wonderful ways, because if you love horror, if you love a macabre horror story, uh, I mean, you can't get much better than the source material, H.P. Lovecraft. But but this, I, I don't know the source material story as well as I should. Um, it's one I, I may have read long ago, but I don't remember it specifically. But I think as far as adaptations and having that H.P. Lovecraft feel, the creature design and, and the paintings that they did and, and the creatures that these paintings are based off were really cool. And they showed them sparingly. You didn't get really good uh, pictures of them. So anything done CG was was hidden. And I think that's a good way to do CG if the CG is not going to be done well. And then when you get home and the the horror that, that Will Thurber comes home to with his wife and his child is just disgusting and grim and very dark i mean if you want to talk horror stories this is probably the the best pure horror story of the lot in guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities now episode six another hp lovecraft story called dreams in the witch house now this is more loosely this one i do remember i do remember this story from hp lovecraft um it's directed by Catherine Hardwick, uh, teleplay by Micah Watkins, and again, based off an H.P. Lovecraft story. This is done uh, not so much like the the H.P. Lovecraft story, but it is definitely inspired by it. It has a lot of the same characters. We end up at the same place, although we get there in a different way. Uh, it stars Rupert Grint, of course, Ron Weasley from the Harry Potter movies. He is... 
a man who, as a child, his twin sister died. He saw her ghost and saw her ghost pulled into uh, some other dimension. And he's spent the rest of his life, instead of being a piano virtuoso like he was as a child, uh, he spent his life trying to find a way to get back to his sister. And that really ends up in the witch house. Now, they really don't make much of the witch house in this story. It's a bigger feature in the H.P. Lovecraft story, but they, they end up there and things, you know, like I said, it, it all happens in relative similarity. Like I said, a lot of the same characters, a lot of the same names are used. I won't to get into too much more of the differences between one and the other, but one of the things I really did dig about this is the creature design. The titular witch of the witch house, uh, Kaiser Mason, uh, the creature design on her apparition is just... Uh, when done in the right way, it was very frightful. When it was on the screen too much, that's when it stopped being as scary as you'll find with that sort of thing. Uh, the human-faced rat, uh, Jenkins Brown, was uh, the CG was not very good, but the the character was interesting. Uh, how Lovecraft came up with this, I don't know, but uh, but to see it played out, it, it had a. a a macabre, a macabre delightfulness about it. And of course, uh, DJ Qualls uh, does the voice for Jenkins Brown, the uh, human faced rat. Ishmael Cruz Cordova has a part in this. Uh, of course, you know him from the Rings of Power. He does a really good job. Uh, the acting, like I said, in in all of this series, in each one of the stories, I thought was really good and really solid. And that's, that's one of the things I liked about this. While the story wasn't exactly like Lovecraft's story, uh, I didn't mind the changes because the, the acting was really good and made the story that they did tell very compelling. And, and you really got sucked into it and you really got sucked into these characters that uh, that Rupert Grint and Ishmael Cruz Cordova are playing. And it does, in, in Lovecraft style, have a very macabre ending. A well, quasi... Uh, it, not a completely happy ending, but a, not a completely nihilistic ending. Uh, it does have a, a, a bad ending for for one character, but a good ending for another character. And it was, like I said, it was enjoyable to watch because, like I said, the horrors were were good. The CG was was pretty good, and the story was interesting. And the actors really brought these characters to life on the screen and made, like I said, any differences between the source material and this adaptation, uh, for my money, forgivable, because I did enjoy what I was watching so much. Episode number seven was probably... Uh, I, I, I don't want to say this was the weakest episode. It probably was my least favorite episode because it took you forever to get to any horror and and it's a shame because the the cast was so good uh it just you know like i said in the, the very first episode a lot 36 it took a long time to get to the horror it took even longer to get to the horror in this the viewing of course directed by panos cosmatos written by panos cosmatos and aaron stewart on it's about this wealthy recluse lionel lassiter played by peter weller he invites these people to come to his, his mansion, and it almost feels like he spends most of the time vetting the people he probably should have already vetted, uh, just asking them a bunch of weird questions, getting them to snort weird laced cocaine, 
giving them the drinks that they've always wanted, including a 7-Up or whatever the one girl's having. It, it really was quite boring, I will say, up until we find out why Lionel Lasseter invited all these these people. Every Everything from an astrophysicist to an author to a spiritualist to a you know, a producer, musician, uh, people in varying, differing fields. No cross-connection whatsoever, really. Uh, we find out why he brought them all there to view a space rock that he has found. And it's uh, nothing, you know, it doesn't show up as any sort of rock known to humans. And we find out why you should never introduce pot to <laughs> alien space rock because that's when shit hit the fan that's when things got good that's when things got gory and the creature design was really weird and interesting uh the powers that this this extraterrestrial creature exhibited were, were horrifying and and i like how it had an ending that kind of was open-ended you don't know what's going to happen next all you know is what happened to the people that that we have been living with for the past hour or so and we don't know what's next because how in god's name are you going to stop this and and i like that i like movies like that i like you know episodes of anthology series stories like that where it leaves it open-ended because you know it could go anywhere from here and to let the mind wander and you know your your mind has walked around in this world and now you're left to wander this world alone and come up with whatever situations you may as to where this story would go next and sometimes sometimes that can be a little annoying but sometimes in this case i think it was a little fun i don't think you had much more story to tell without getting into a bigger story that this this wasn't a bigger story this was this contained story and once we got to an end of it once we got to the end of it it's up to you to to figure out where you think it goes next now the final episode of cabinet of curiosities is the murmuring directed by jennifer kent uh teleplay by jennifer kent based on a short story by guillermo del toro and this wasn't your typical you know you had a lot of stories that dealt into straight up horror uh stories like pickman's model and uh, dreams in the witch house uh, autopsy lot 36 this wasn't those types of horror stories this was more of a classic ghost story and it stars essie davis uh, of course you know her she played the mom in the babadook uh andrew lincoln uh you know do i need to say walking dead but they play nancy and edgar bradley who they study birds and this particular type of bird and they go to this island and stay in this old house because these bird migrations uh and this thing they do where they're uh, they fly in unison called murmurings murmurations they should say um they can study that that is what they're studying and this they find out that this old house has a history and a dark one at that and nancy gets more wrapped up in that than her 
work that she's supposed to do be doing. And there's a lot of interplay between her and Edgar because they have uh, they had lost a child here within the past year, and that's caused problems with their relationship. So you really get a lot of drama with this. And I think these two actors were perfect for handling that sort of drama along with the horror. Um, so, but you get a lot of drama with their relationship and them working that out. Uh, Nancy, the S.E. Davis character, working out her issues and with you know, with the loss of a child. You know, she's she's never really fully grieved at the loss of this child and the spirits that she deals with in this house help her uh, uh, along with scare the shit out of her. <laughs> so uh, it, it was really cool. Uh, I think they could have done some of the ghost revelations a little, uh, a little more scary, a little lean, a little more into the horror in that uh, there were times when she just turned around and there'd be a kid there. And I, th I think they could have done things a little better as far as uh, the ghost reveals to to lean a little more into the horror, to lean a, more, a little more into that. Maybe you're not seeing something the way you should be seeing it, and then it reveals itself. You know, play with negative space. Like David Bruckner did that uh, wonderfully, wonderfully scary in the night house. Uh, they could have done some things like that. There was there was a scene where she's uh, Nancy is having this uh, supernatural encounter. She's hearing things, and behind her, you see like some sort of mannequin or or something that has a white. Uh, cloth over top of it and I kept waiting for that cloth to move and it never did and okay I'm like okay my my attention's here and the scare is going to come from somewhere else and the scare never really came from somewhere else and there were just moments where they could have leaned a little more into the horror uh, not so much just a plain ghost story with plain ghosts uh, and and all the drama that was involved in this but, you know, I, I didn't mind that because it was a really good story. And it was so wonderfully acted by Essie Davis and Andrew Lincoln. I thought both of those two uh, did such a, a wonderful job with these characters and made me care about the drama uh, just as much as the horror in this this ghost story. Uh, so that was saying a lot for, for somebody like me who was looking for... I just wanted something scary. I just wanted ghosts. I didn't want the drama. I didn't know I needed that drama, but I but I enjoyed that drama and it told a very a very good story. And I thought that was kind of a good way to wrap up this season of of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities with with a, a story like this, a good palate cleanser for some of the horror that we saw and some of the the gore that we saw this was a good palate cleanser for that and ended on you know one a happier note and two uh, a story that was just so well acted i mean as far as the actors in this series go they had some really good actors but two of the caliber of of se davis and andrew lincoln i thought was a, a fantastic job by the both of them so all in all, I loved this first season of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. If you haven't watched it, I encourage you. If you love horror, if you love good, creepy, uh, 
campfire stories. This is a, a must watch. Um, even if you're not a fan of Guillermo del Toro's uh, movies, and I know some people aren't. It's not some people's cup of tea. Sometimes he, uh, he leans a little more into the artsiness and, and less into you know monsters and creatures, but he always does that. He always does monsters and creatures really well when he does those. Even even when he doesn't, even Nightmare Alley. When when I went and watched that, uh, I thought it was gonna be. I thought it was gonna lean more into some scary stuff than it actually did. It was more straight up drama, uh, dark drama, but drama all the same. But it still had like you know in that uh, climax, still had some some gruesome moments that leaned into a, a particular type of, of body horror, which uh, you know that's what I like about Guillermo del Toro. He always leans into something that that is very akin to horror, fantasy, and science fiction, the genres, which I, that's what makes me love him as a director and a producer. But ultimately, this, I thought, were very good stories. Um, I, I was glad to see they did some some of Guillermo del Toro's personal stories. He's, he's a good writer as well as a director and, and, and producer, but uh, they did some of his stories. They did a couple HP Lovecraft stories, uh, some stories from authors I'm not really familiar with, uh, it makes me want to get familiar with them. Uh, I'm looking forward to if they do a second season, do they add, you know, Stephen King has a whole plethora of stories that that could be adapted for this. W would they do some King stuff? I, I would really like to see Guillermo del Toro uh, tackle Stephen King. I was so disappointed when I heard he wanted to do uh, a version of Pet Cemetery. I was like, oh, I, I have to imagine he would have done a, a lot better job than the abomination we got here a couple years ago. But I love the stories. I thought the acting was all really good. They, they had some really good actors, whether it be name actors that you recognize right away or those those actors that oh I know him from somewhere I know her from this somewhere I I'm not can't place my finger on it but they had a lot of really good actors involved with this the special effects were good uh, I thought the set designs like I said almost all of these stories if not all of them were period pieces they're all set in a another time whether it be the 80s, the 70s, the 1800s, turn of the century, they were all period pieces, and I thought all the costumes and sets looked really well. Uh, I thought the the CG wasn't bad. They, you know, there were some CG moments, like I said, CG rats, CG animals in general always look, uh, they're always iffy for me but uh, but a lot of the practical effects they did were really good they had some good gore they had some good jump scares they had some good atmosphere and creepy scares and and they just had a little something for everyone each story felt different from any of the others even the two uh stories that were hp lovecraft stories they felt lovecraftian but they looked different. They felt different. And you felt like you were watching a couple different stories and not just like, you know, all the same stuff, the same look, the same feel story after story, which, which I appreciated that. So I absolutely loved Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Uh, I probably one of my favorite anthology series out there right now. Um, I'm really hoping they do a second season. Last I heard, there's been no commitment by Netflix to do a second season. Uh, Netflix is very much a, we're going to see how many people tune in to watch. And if people don't watch quick enough and soon enough, they will pull the plug 
before an audience is even able to be built. If Netflix doesn't renew this, I really hope somebody else picks this up. I, I really think this would be a, a perfect vehicle for some other streaming service. If Netflix doesn't want this, some other streaming service is going to you know, hit a gold mine because I think this is the, the type of horror anthology series that horror fans are just going to love and will, will make some, some other streaming service some money, I would imagine. But uh, once we find out one way or the other, whether Netflix is picking this up for a second, second season or not, we will definitely pass along that information. But I want to thank everyone for listening to my thoughts on Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, the horror anthology on Netflix. I loved it. Hopefully, if you watched it, you loved it as much as I did. If you haven't watched it, go do yourself a favor and check this out on Netflix. So, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Check us out, Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on Facebook for trailers and articles from all over the internet about uh, the horror, fantasy, and science fiction we love. And no matter where you listen to this podcast, please Follow it, subscribe to it, like it, download the episodes, uh, share the episodes with anyone that you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction, and please leave a review. Five stars will be awesome, but whatever review you leave, we do appreciate that more than you'll ever know. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!